Hello everyone, I am Mirta Hurtado Rivas. No VIPs or rock stars, just simple people sharing their life stories to trigger discussions around important topics or simply to inspire us to embrace challenges ourselves. Welcome to Leadership. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Leadership. Today my guest is Mesa Razavi. Hi Mesa, how are you? Good, Mircha, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for accepting to be on this podcast. I'm super excited about it. First of all, because we've known each other for a little while, but then also because um, actually we spend a lot of time working on things together. And one of my passions, as you know, is anti-counterfeiting. And um, I've been so pleased with our collaborations that that's why I thought about who else can I invite. And obviously it has to be someone who is related to this area that I'm so passionate about. So I will directly dive into this. Um, let's start with the first question. Mesa, what did you want to become as a child? I wanted to be a writer and I've, I've just been fascinated with books all my life and how powerful words are to people. They can change a story, can teach you so many things. Um, so I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, that interest changed into a love of theater because I think when you go to a show or a play, you, you can see how words and just conversation can convey so many different strong messages. Um, so that was really my passion when I was a child. Um, so yeah, that's where I, I started off. <laughs> so um, was there anything specific in your environment or in your family that kind of drove you to books? I think I was a little bit more of an introvert growing up um, and a bookworm. Um, so I, I think that I learned so much from reading and, and just taking in stories and, and just learning from there that it, it really drove me to this, this love and this want to do the same thing, to share my experiences in a way where you can connect with somebody in a, in a universal manner. I think that that's just an amazing gift that writers do have. Did your parents in any way, so do you, do you already come from a family of readers? Like my family, for instance, you know, they all read. And actually kind of relaxing time for us when we were children where my parents would say, okay, go and pick up your books. Which, you know, today when you think about it, it's a totally contradicting thing because for a child, our days picking up a book very seldomly is kind of relaxation time. Whereas for us, it was, was pretty common that you would see my parents sitting somewhere reading and then us sitting somewhere else and reading as well. Did you experience something similar? I actually didn't. My, my father is a numbers person and worked Ooh. with computers, so it was a little different there. And my mom is an extrovert, so she did a lot of talking and a lot of social interaction. Um, but growing up, my father made a point to read to me every night and that's something that I remember growing up um, and they always read to me in English and I and my parents are, were immigrants to the US so they you know their first language is Farsi and I think that was like a big testament to them to sit and read um, 
in a, a language that's not as comfortable for them. Um, so I do think that they had the influence on me, but um, in their own way. Interesting. Um, so when we look a little bit as to where you are today, can you maybe just, you know, go back a little from that, you know, dream of becoming a writer as to where you ended up now and what you, you know, what your kind of development was through those years? So I, I did have that love of, of reading and writing when I was younger. Um, writing didn't come as easy to me. I actually had... Um, a, a good strong math and science background when I was younger. Um, but you know, I, I liked, I like a challenge as well. So I, I really focused on <clears throat> my, my writing um, growing up. And then when I went to school, I, I decided to major in dramatic writing and I came to New York City, which I thought is the center of all theater and, and, you know, I learned a lot from my teachers and even some of the people that were working here in theater. I had a chance to intern at different places and learn from people that were professionals. Um, but I did see it is a very difficult life. <laughs> and I have like, I have the like math and science parents who kept saying, you know, why don't you find something where you can live off of, <laughs> which I appreciate that kind of advice. Um, so I, I had started in a, a job in marketing for theater while I had all these internships. Um, and then I did the same thing right after school. Uh, I, I actually did marketing in a financial capacity at, um, at Ernst & Young, um, which was an interesting place to be. Wow. Because, um, again, I was working with the math people and trying to translate their their numbers into words and trying to sell their their services that way um and i learned a lot there because i was able to work closely with the leaders of the organization at, at a young age so that was an interesting experience as, as well in that uh sense but i worked very closely with the the ip attorney there the trademark attorney who said no to me a lot of times and I said, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, a lot of the times I was a very um, headstrong 20 something. <laughs> uh, and eventually I said, you know, I could do that job. And that's when I decided to go to law school. Um, and then from there, I had a lot of internships with very strong people. My first internship in law school, I worked at a clothing company and they were new and highly counterfeited. Um, and I worked with a paralegal that was doing all of their brand protection work. And I learned so much from that woman. She would walk down the street and we would see, you know, the counterfeits on the street and she would yell at all of the consumers like, don't buy that perfume. It has you know, it'll cause cancer, like there's carcinogens in there, you know, she was just so passionate about it that once I worked for her, I, I learned why this work is important, um, even more broadly than just, you know, trademark law and like the nuances there. Uh, so that really started that passion in, inside me. And I, I learned from others in that, in the field. And really, that's what brought me to where I am now. Um, 
you know, you go to law school, you want to change the world a little bit. And in this role that I have now, I get a chance to actually do that, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. Very interesting, kind of the different stages that you went through. And actually, you know, and, and I'm thinking to some extent, what you said, like your experience at, at Ernst Young, where you were translating numbers into a marketing message, is a lot of what we do our days and the fields we work in, right? Is translating what the law says, but into something really that makes sense and that's palpable for the consumer to understand that it's not only about the law, it's not only about protecting profit of certain companies, but it's really about keeping people safe. And, and I think that has a lot to do with this kind of, you know, interpretation of different circumstances and factor that then translate into something. And hopefully in, in the case of, and I've seen at least in your case, into action, right? In really doing things and, and as you say, um, trying to change the world a little bit. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is happening even, you know, if we cannot put sometimes numbers on it or, or we cannot really displayed visually as to what it is we are achieving or in particular you are driving, I still think very strongly that this is um, a very positive kind of, you know, focus and fulfilling, I, I would say, in the sense of trying to do something to keep consumers protected and making them aware of all the risks they're incurring. So, um, so you said you have learned from many different people that were strong in this area and even you mentioned your teachers in you know drama were also kind of you know professionals very skilled so it seems like you have met quite an, a, a few of um, managers or leaders in the different positions that you went through um, what in your eyes is what makes you know a good leader or a good manager well, I think a, a good leader is someone who can recognize opportunities and, and really, I guess, seize them. Um, I see people with different styles achieving amazing things. And I think that most leaders always say yes to things and maybe take on a little too much, but it, it's the way that they manage things where I actually learn you know, different skills from people. Um, I also think a, a good leader is someone who's really genuine to themselves, because that's something that I have learned a lot from, especially from very strong women in, in the, the field, but they always are themselves. Um, they don't change for anybody. Um, and I'll give an example. I was working with one a member of INTA and we were traveling to the Middle East together and she dressed a little bit more provocatively just normally um, and we were meeting with you know very uh, conservative officials and she didn't change anything about the way she looked she you know gave her hand and I don't think it was a matter of being like culturally insensitive I just think that that's who she is she's like a warm person and you know, expressive in that way. So she wouldn't change that for the situation. And I think that that's an important leadership skill as well. You know, really being genuine to yourself um, and then seizing the opportunities that come to you. 
I think it's interesting. It's also particularly courageous, right? I think because traveling to the Middle East and, and, and specific countries, sometimes um, I at least have experienced that, for instance, people wouldn't speak to me on the phone because I'm a woman and, and, and the person in charge was a man. And hence I had to ask at that time we were um, only almost women in the team. There was just one, 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 one male attorney with us. And we had to ask him every time to kind of start off the discussion. And then we were able to chip in giving, you know, um, the real advice afterwards. So I think it's also courageous um, to really stick to who you are and what you believe is right in, in those situations. You mentioned you mentioned one thing that I would like to maybe dig a little bit deeper into, and that's when you say it's people who see opportunities. Is this meant in the sense they see opportunities for their teams, for their companies, for themselves? So how is it that that you know interacts with the different parts of of you know the the leader being kind of you know in the center and then having to manage the different layers? Well, I, I think it is opportunities across the board. So I do think that a leader is seeing opportunities for themselves personally, just ways to grow. Because um, I do a leader doesn't just become a leader and that's it. You have to keep growing personally every day. Um, even until the day you die, you have to learn <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, but I do think you are looking for opportunities for your organization as well, just doing things in a creative way. You can't just keep the status quo or just capitalize on what you have. Um, I also do think there is opportunities in, in for looking for opportunities for your staff as well. I think that there's an important piece of leadership where you actually do trust your staff to do what you hired them to do. Um, I don't think micromanaging helps that well <laughs> in that sense. Um, but it is that, you know, you you recognize the skills of your staff and you really put them to their full potential and you you have a high expectation of people. Um, I, that's actually something I learned from you. I think you have a very high expectation of those around <laughs> you and, you know, you want people to rise to that. And I think that that's something to admire because, um, like, I, I sometimes take things to heart and I, I, I like to do things myself at times and just because I like hold myself to, I know I hold myself to a high level of accountability, but to actually trust somebody else with that, I think that that's a reality as well for a leader. You have to really trust your team and, and know that they will do their best. I think you've mentioned a couple of really important points that that resonate a lot with me i think you've mentioned really empowerment right which is really um the display of trust um for those that work with you and, and i think that's a very strong motivator for people if they feel that they are kind of they can work independently that they are trusted and that they are empowered and accountable for what they do i think that kind of gives a lot of people motivation and, and a drive to continue the other piece that I really like, and I think that is very often forgotten, or at least it was forgotten in past years, I think we speak more about it now. It's really the fact that everyone um, needs to continue to develop. Everyone needs to continue to learn. And, and when I speak to even more senior people than myself, it's not that I'm that young, 
<laughs> I'm also getting towards that age where, where others look at you as being senior. But when I look at even, you know, those um, who have been in managerial positions for a long time, I think that's one of their kind of qualities that I respect a lot is the fact that they always admit that there are things they don't know and that they're actually there to learn more and that they're actually willing to listen to others, right? I've, I've heard about this new concept of mentoring, for instance, where we, it's not only the senior person actually handing over information and experience to the junior person, but actually today we do the kind of, you know, the other way around. Actually, young people are chosen to be mentoring um, more senior people to actually bring them back to what's really happening in, you know, in their age um, kind of, you know, area peers, but also as to how they see the world and how they experience everything. So I think this reverse mentoring is also interesting to me. And I think I would agree with you, this kind of development, continuous development and continuing to do that over and over is, is, is a factor that I also count into those characteristics that are for me needed to become a leader. And the other thing that you mentioned that you mentioned already before is like authenticity, right? Um, I think we forget, and I myself have gone to that because people have advised me just much later that actually nobody was expecting me to change. Um, when I actually had the feeling I had to change because I had, I had now more responsibility, I had to be more serious or I had to be like, you know, less dynamic for certain people because I was too fast sometimes. And, and actually... I think that, yes, there are things you can always improve in your interactions. But as soon as you start going into the area where you're not yourself anymore, actually, it requires a lot of energy and it requires, like, you know, it creates a lot of tension because you need to be something or someone, act as someone that you're not naturally. And that is felt by others, not by everyone, but I think um, by some people it's really felt. And then kind of you're less credible and with less credibility, then obviously comes also the fact that, you know, you will not be able to kind of communicate in an appropriate way, be it good or bad things, but you will lack this credibility and that kind of weakens your position um, very quickly. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, um, you know, we grow to become big, great leaders and then we do something wrong and everyone has forgotten that we had a pretty good job for some time. But I like this kind of empowerment, trust and authenticity and kind of self-development because it brings together all. I was wondering when you first started, you know, see these opportunities, if some of that was covered and it actually covered all of the points that I had in mind as well. So thanks for that. You also preempted my, my next question, which was like, um, if you think that those attributes can be, you know, taught to someone that they can be learned. And you said, yes, you know, it's a continuous learning. I was wondering, um, we have had um, in previous um, episodes of this podcast, people who have said that there is some styles of management that belong more to female or male. Would you agree with that? Or is there kind of, you mentioned before, different styles of managers that you had encountered. Would you say it's more of a personality issue than a gender issue? Where do you stand on that? Um, I think I, I 
um, male managers and female managers in my career, um, I think you may treat people differently based on their their gender. Um, and, you know, I've, I've felt that from some of my male managers where they've been either gentler with me. Um, when I was in finance, I worked with a lot of a lot of male managers and they, I, I was a young professional and I know a lot of the time, like I noticed that some of them wouldn't look at me when they would speak to me. And I got very offended by that. Um, but it actually took some time to realize that a lot of these people were like, it, it not because they don't respect me or whatnot, but it was just like an uncomfortability of being like an older man with a younger woman in the room and not wanting to disrespect me, um, which it took me a long time to realize that because I had my you know male manager in the room and they would talk directly with him in a more you know collegiate way um, than with me, um, you know, and I I had that feeling where I needed to change myself a little bit in that instance and I would you know wear the like like very boring power suits and whatnot to work and try to be dressed down as much as possible not you know in more conservative conservatively not dressed down um, more professionally at least that's what I thought um, but it took me a while to realize it, it was kind of like they were a little bit more afraid of me than I was afraid of them kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I just, I, it took me some time to realize that, you know, that there is that dynamic there, but that doesn't mean that that should hold you back. I think it, you know, you, you do have a different perspective as a woman as compared to a man. And you know you should take advantage of that when you can. Um, maybe it's something like having, some, you know, men can be very direct, and I have a softer approach, and I think that's part of my femininity. Um, so that might be something that empowers me in certain situations. Um, I do see a difference sometimes with um, female managers. There is a little bit of competition sometimes <laughs> there. Um, and I felt that before in my career, I don't have it really that much right now. Um, but that's something that I'm very aware of. And, you know, I manage female colleagues and I try very hard to, to ask them, you know, what do you want? Let's try to get there and work there together, try to give them opportunity because I felt that and I just don't want that for them. Um, Yes, you mentioned, I think the, the first point, point that you mentioned, I'm really thankful that you bring this up because I think you're the first one to, to relate to that. And that's the fact that sometimes the mere fact that we are women put men in a position where they don't feel comfortable and when, where they kind of are overcautious. And by this caution that they display, they make us feel different than our male colleagues and then with that, we feel like actually the opposite of what they wanted to achieve is happening, which is we feel disrespected, we feel excluded. And for many, um, 
um, not for not not for all, but for many, that can also lead to de demotivation, you know, and frustration, or being even scared to speak up and share your mind, and you know, be proactive and and kind of yeah, even just simply active in a discussion, but just more at the receiving end because we are feeling as yeah, as non-seen, right? People are not looking at us. People are just looking somewhere else. They they don't. They don't ask us as often as our male colleagues what we think or if there is anything we would like to add. So even their caution because of um, their discomfort um, can lead actually to exactly the opposite that they want to achieve. And I think it's a very important point because I think it, it's what we base on our assumptions, right? We have a lot of assumptions. Like we normally think, oh, this is because we're disrespected so the person is is acting that way. So we are actually part of the problem as well because we are just reinforcing what our assumption was already in our head by looking as to how we can translate what we see into that action. So very often it's like, it's not only one part is acting in a way that gives us a bad feeling or feels us, you know, lets us feel disrespected, but at the same time, it's ourselves, our mind, just saying, ah, oh, so he's talking more to this person and not to us. So it is because I'm a woman or, and we don't even go that far as to think, oh, maybe there is actually, it's, it's actually the opposite. This is a senior man and I'm a junior attorney. And hence he feels actually, you know, out of the comfort zone to need to be in a closed room with me and, and talk to me. So I think it's a very important point because it's it throws us back to the fact that if we need to look for solutions overall in this area, we need to be part of that. So we ourselves also need to kind of challenge our assumptions and ask us, so is it really what you're hearing or is it a combination of your assumption together with what you hear and it makes you think that this is confirming everything you thought the person would be. And you end up in this kind of vicious circle of the more you think about it, the more these things confirm themselves and, and actually you're not part of the solution, but just um, reinforcing the problem. So I think that's really an important point and I hope that our audience will think about that as well. Now, um, you mentioned as well, kind of, you know, um, female competition. I think that's a huge topic, right? Um, we see more and more now on social media that there is a lot of kind of emphasis put, you know, with respect to females should be helping other female to climb up the ladder. And that they, you know, there is a lot of discussion as to how can we kind of stop creating that atmosphere of competition, women against women, and more women with women going, you know, I'm not sure if it's against um, something that exists, but in for sure to create the opportunities to end up being equal um, with men, right? So um, I was wondering, you mentioned um, your parents uh, were immigrants. Um, is there anything in the culture of your parents that you think has also kind of had an influence with respect to how you see gender issues. You mentioned, you know, both your parents were kind of number science. So I assume they were both, you know, professionally active and they were kind of pushing you to find a profession that would also um, kind of put you on the safe side economically for the future. 
Um, has that kind of, you know, examples that you saw, saw at home have an influence on you with respect to, you know, this kind of, what are the opportunities for female that you saw then? Yeah, well, I, I think that what, just seeing the, what my parents have done for me, coming to another country, giving me opportunities that I would never have in Iran where they came from. It just, that is something that I remind myself of all the time when I do feel like I face adversity. I just, I feel like, you know, they came here, my parents were very well connected in Iran um, and they came here for school and there was a revolution and a lot of the resources that they had at home were just pulled away from them. Um, and then they had to just start over here and just thinking about being isolated from your family, you know, just having each other and, and building something out of, and out of nothing in a place where, like I grew up in, in the Midwest in Buffalo, um, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not somewhere where they welcome different cultures or diversity. And so, you know, I, I, I give them a lot of credit because they like my mom is a very strong personality and she wouldn't take anything from anyone that said, you know, oh, you're, you know, you have an accent, you should be treated differently. Um, we're in a place where that would be common to do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've always felt support from them and they always told me like there, anything is possible. So, you know, if you have that kind of support from, from people that have built their lives from almost nothing in the middle of their lives at that time uh, now, I guess. I think that that's, that's a big deal. So, um, you know, having that in the back of your mind is really important. And um, yeah, I think that that's something that I, a lesson I always hold from them. For sharing that, Mesa, I think, um... Yes, what you just mentioned resonates with me. My parents were immigrants as well. And I think that shapes us very strongly because, as you mentioned just now, even during lockdown, I was telling myself, you know, oh, this is really like, you know, difficult and I cannot travel. So I cannot go back to, you know, to see my, the rest of my family back in Peru. But then I was thinking, hey, by the way, when my parents came here and they started pretty much, you know, without many things that they had to leave back home. Um, they couldn't travel every year. They traveled like every three or four years. And even when we were a family, it was like very expensive to travel back and to kind of get this opportunity. So um, I think it, it's true that when I face a challenge and even more so if it's a personal, really difficult challenge, I think back to um, the roles that my parents played in, in my life and what they kind of try to achieve. And, and it kind of gives me a little bit of a hope and it pushes my resilience, like kind of this resilient factors element comes up and, and I'm then kind of in a better place to take on what's coming towards me. Um, so um, I was wondering... Um, the discussion about gender, as you know, is something I'm, I'm quite passionate about. I wanted to know if you if you feel that this is um, a topic that is outdated, um, that we don't need to discuss anymore, because in the U.S. maybe things are a bit different than here, or if you or if you believe that we need to continue 
talking about it um, and even maybe make it just normal to, you know, to discuss those things. I, I think that we need to continue the conversation. Um, I feel, I feel like um, women are, you know, on paper we are equals and a lot of things we are expected the same things of men in our positions. Um, but, you know, I recently become a new mother. I have two young children and I see how difficult it is to do everything. And I'm, you can't have it all, even though you're work, a working mo mother, you have to pick some and choose different priorities at times. That really resonates with me right now. Um, I think at, even now in lockdown, I, I feel like everything is on me to do, to clean, to cook, to get our kids, you know, entertained at all times, to work. And it's working now, you know, 24 hours a day, it feels, because, you know, it, we're working from home and we're accessible. Um, and it, it has been a lot and I had to pick priorities at different times. Um, but I think that those kinds of struggles are not really acknowledged when we talk about men and women and their roles. And I think that, you know, it's the, it's the gender role. It's like, oh, the wife cooks and cleans and is domestic as well as now you wanna work, you can work too, but you still gotta do those things. Um, and there isn't enough in the day. And it's really, I think, sharing those experiences and prioritizing. Um, and, and I do think that there's still room to talk about empowering each other because I do think that we don't really talk that much about the competition anymore. We just talk about empowering. Um, but I, I do think that we need to talk about how to deal with those competitive women, which I understand being competitive and you know, trying to shut out the competition. <laughs> I, I can see that, um, that view and why people do it. But I do think that if we all work together to raise each other, I think that that's really being a leader is, you know, raising up the people around you, whether they're men or women or, or what. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for reminding us that actually the current situation has um, put even more pressure um, you know, towards women, that is normally already the case. And I also think it's important for people to understand that your priorities need to change just because of that, that, that nobody probably, you know, likes to do that, right? You don't want to prioritize something over something else or your children over work or work over a presentation or a call over cooking or whatever it is. I, I don't think that's what any woman would like to do. We would like just to have an environment where just things are picked up by both partners and are shared equally and that there's not this assumption that we are better at doing certain things um, than others and then hence that falls on us or that we are just better at dealing with children because we're more patient, which uh, again, I, I struggle with just the assumptions that are made and that, you know, then, then we are supposed to fulfill. So. And with you there, it just reminds me also that during the pandemic, 
it was interesting to see, at least here in Europe, in many countries, um, when you would see the interviews and, you know, the discussions about the pandemic, it was very often men. White men that were there discussing when actually we know that, for instance, the frontliners in hospitals, uh, very, very often, uh, the majority were women. And, you know, women from all types of races, um, religions, and whatever. And, and those women were actually pretty much absent from the public eye because they were not interviewed as experts on the news or on reports. And, and to me, it's just funny to think that even though we have been um, a high percentage of those working at the front lines, uh, you know, also in supermarkets here in Europe, for instance, supermarkets were always open. Who is it? A cashier. It's a, it's, it's a woman most of the times, right? So I think it's interesting to see that that debate kind of disappeared. Um, it's not being talked a lot about. And, and it just reminded me of that when you said that the pandemic also took a toll, um, toll on those that stayed home and worked at the same time. So with that, um, we come to my last question, and um, which is totally unrelated to the questions before. Um, so I would like to know if you could um, speak to yourself when you were in your 20s, which type of advice would you give yourself? I think I would, I would like to tell 20 year old Mesa, I, you know, I think you should be more, more proud of yourself. Cause I think that's something that I don't do a lot of. Like I, I know I work hard and I know that I get results and I, I'm the type of person though, who gets something done and says, okay, I did it and doesn't really celebrate it or, you know, toot my own horn kind of thing. Um, and I think that that's something I even don't do it so much right now. Um, and I think that's one of my weaknesses. I hold myself to like that, uh, I think a high standard and I, I can just sit and look at my faults and, and spend a lot of time on that, but I don't celebrate the wins as much as I should. And I think that that's something that I didn't do at all in my twenties and I do some of now, which I, I wish I would <laughs> do more of. Um, so that's just something. Sounds like very wise. And I think many of the women I know are very hard on themselves. They're very critical. We are easy to condemn ourselves when we do something wrong. We, we kind of overcome things that go wrong very you know, very slowly, we, 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 we kind of love to go back on yes, that went wrong and how terrible that was instead of just turning the page and saying, well, I'll do better next time. So I hear you and I think it's really important. And, and by the way, I think that that's one of the important parts of this sort of sorority movement, right? Of with you a lot about if we see good things that other women are doing, let's praise it. So that they will feel kind of, okay, there is some recognition coming from somewhere else. And so if there is recognition, then probably I'm doing something right. I'm doing great. And it's maybe also easier than to recognize and kind of applaud yourself more often with that. 
Well, it has been a pleasure having you today, Mesa. Thanks so much for taking the time. I know that you're extremely busy and um, we saw that your children did want to come and reach you while we were talking. Uh, so uh, thanks for taking the time. It has been a pleasure. Um, I know we will be in touch uh, very, very soon, um, but really I, I think it is fantastic that um, you were able um, to take some time out of your busy schedule and join us for today's conversation. I'm honored to be interviewed by Mirta, so and my pleasure. So bye everyone. Thank bye. you. I hope you liked this episode of Leadership in English. Don't forget to give us a thumbs up on your respective platform and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon.